0: This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio.
1: So, look, all I want to do is this. I just want to find uh, 11,780 votes,
0: which is one more that we have. The sweeping indictment of Donald Trump and 18 others alleges a vast conspiracy that stretched from the Oval Office and Trump's infamous call to Georgia's Secretary of State to find him enough votes to win the battleground state to a hearing in Georgia's State House where false statements were made that Fulton County election workers illegally counted between 12,000 and 24,000 fake ballots that were unloaded off a truck in the middle of the night. There were ballots coming out. Thousands and thousands of ballots in um, paper bags,
1: in, um, in garbage cans, in um, cardboard boxes, and then they were put on a table and they were counted for the next three hours.
0: To a rural county in Georgia and the plot to access voting machines and even includes the harassment of an election worker. But the former president remains defiant. We don't take plea deals because I did nothing wrong. It's called election interference. You know what that is? Joining me is Michael Moore, the former U.S. attorney for the Middle District of Georgia and a partner at Moore Hall. Michael, the sheer breadth of this indictment, 161 acts alleged ranging from making false statements and forgery to computer theft and perjury, is it almost too much even for a RICO prosecution? I
1: think your analysis is probably right. I mean, the problem when you cast such a big net is that it oftentimes tangles you up, too, and that's what she's done. She's got almost 100-page indictments, and she's laid out all these acts and, in places, obviously, outside of jurisdiction, and that's why she used the RICO charges. She she wanted to be able to talk about all these other allegations that she wouldn't have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt, and which she typically wouldn't have jurisdiction for in the indictment. So. It's going to be a whale of an undertaking without any question. You know, so many of the allegations standing alone, especially when we talk about overt acts, standing alone, they're just pretty vanilla and irrelevant to this. Things like setting a meeting or making a phone call or, you know, those kinds of innocuous type of things. But she's trying to paint the picture and use the context of all of this was this big swirling conspiracy at the same time. So the problem with that is that you know Rico's great if you're a prosecutor because you can talk about all the dirty laundry that there is as opposed to just one defendant's dirty laundry. The double-edged sword side of that is that you also then are binding yourself to having to prove this because a good defense attorney will just look for that one loose thread and start to pull it and unravel the case off of just some part of it that they were not able to prove. And you just need to cast enough doubt in the jury's mind to cause them to not convict. So sometimes more is less. And that may be the case here.
0: Fonnie Willis is seeking a March trial date and says she wants to try all 19 defendants together. Do you think the judge will actually let her go to trial with 19 defendants?
1: I don't think so, and I don't think there's any chance in the world she's going to try the case or put it up for trial within six months. I think that's just a good PR statement to make, but I think anybody who watches the court system and certainly is familiar with Fulton County will tell you that case isn't going to trial in six months. You'll have defendants who ask to sever their charges. That is, they don't want to be lumped in with everybody else. The problem is if they're in the RICO case, that poses a unique question for the judge. You'll have other defendants who may end up cutting some kind of deal. They may take a plea agreement or agree to cooperate as a testifying witness in exchange for their case being dismissed. You never know what might happen, but you'll have a some defendants drop off like that. And that's frankly what I think she has done by naming so many people, that is to really put the vice grips on some of these defendants to get them to flip and then give testimony. And the best way to do that is to name them in an indictment. So I think that this is the kind of case that is likely to not happen in 2024. Certainly not before the election and I don't see how there's any chance in the world that she goes to court with nineteen defendants because at one lawyer apiece, I mean, you can imagine the pandemonium in the courtroom with that many lawyers and that many defendants and every time there's an objection, every time there's a witness, and every time there's a document to look at, and you know that all of those almost twenty groups would be wanting to be heard at the same time. So it's 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 unlikely.
0: Well, and also Trump is known for delay, 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 and there'll be pretrial motions. Speaking of which, Trump's former chief of staff, Mark Meadows, is trying to move the Georgia criminal case against him to federal court from state court. Do you think he has a good chance of doing that?
1: I think it's a good motion. He's filing to move it under a federal statute that allows for a state case to be transferred to the federal court under certain conditions when a federal official has been charged. And it's a statute, it's a rule then that is really centuries old that was designed to sort of prohibit state and partisan meddling in the business and the affairs of federal officials. You can't likely think of much more of a federal official than a president and a chief of staff. And the conduct that's alleged in the indictment really focuses on the efforts surrounding the election. And for an incumbent president with an incumbent serving chief of staff, then I think that clearly would be under the scope of their work as it related to the election. Whether or not the claims about election integrity, whether or not the claims about trying to steal the election, those are things that have to be adjudicated in a trial. But the argument would be, and it has to be an argument that's at least plausible. And so the plausible argument is, if you're Meadows or Trump, that I was doing this to make sure that the election was accurate. We were doing this to make sure that the election had not been stolen. We were doing this to make sure there was integrity in our electoral system. We were doing this to make sure that the vice president knew that he had the ability, if there was some squirrely activity going on, he we thought he had the ability based on the advice of our lawyers to pause the electoral vote count, or we at least have these discussions. So there's a plausible argument that they could make that they were trying to do something within the scope of federal authority. You know, Whether or not they win the motion, I think it's a different type of motion that was heard in the payment case in New York when they tried to transfer that case, and the judge basically said, "You know, payments of this nature are not within the presidential authority, and it's certainly not within the scope of their federal work." I think there's a different claim to be had here, so I wasn't surprised at all to see them make the motion. I think Trump will soon be making the same motion and a transfer from the state court to the federal court, obviously in nearest to his
0: benefit. Yeah, I mean, there won't be cameras in a federal courtroom, and he could get a Trump-appointed judge.
1: He could. I will tell you that the judges in the Northern District of Georgia, and I know most all of them, I consider many them friends. even the Trump appointees, I would never classify them as MAGA judges. These are people who either were on an appellate court somewhere and got elevated, what I would call more centrist type individuals, the benefit to him would be he would draw from a much larger and much more politically palatable to him jury pool. So you would get outside of Fulton County where the case is now, which was a huge win for Biden. And you would get into an area which has some counties in the Northern District of Georgia and the Atlanta Division that certainly leans Republican. And so it allows him to try to expand his opportunity to have a jury that would more likely have some people on it that might identify with you know, Republican leanings and that type of thing. And remember that it takes one juror in a criminal case to hang the jury up and to prevent a conviction. And so his lawyers are really playing into that one or two jurors that I believe would be sympathetic to the claim that this was legitimate. So that's why I think the move is there. And also, I'm sure that the lawyers would like the case in federal court for the formality. Uh, The federal courts are known for Stronger motion practice. It obviously would be a clearer path for appeal issues, both to the federal courts of appeal and then to the U.S. Supreme Court, though that option obviously exists in the state proceeding at some point because of the constitutional issues. But it's just a move that I think is at least thought out. It's not a harebrained motion, if I can say it
0: that way. Do you think that it would hamper Willis's ability to try a RICO case if it was in federal court? Would she be hamstrung more?
1: I think she may be. I think that it gets her off of her home turf. I think that you play by a little bit different rules. I mean, some lawyers don't like to be in federal court at all. It's a more formal practice. So it would be outside the norm for her, let's put it that way.
0: What defenses do you see Trump possibly raising in this case?
1: I mean, I think there will be clear First Amendment defenses. We'll have arguments about protected political speech. I think come up. I think without question, there'll be some executive privilege issues that come up. There'll be presidential immunity issues that come up. Again, things that I think the federal courts are more, they may be more used to dealing with those than you see in the state courts. He will likely raise, you know, advice of counsel, say I was doing what my lawyers told me to do. He has a notorious ability to sort of put a buffer between him and the criminal gavel coming down on them, if you will, and that is to have a lawyer or an intermediary or somebody there that you can say, well, I was, you know, they didn't do exactly what I told them to do, or I was doing what they suggested that I do, and so in this case, I think you'll say, look, we were meeting, the lawyers came up with these ideas, we were just having these creative discussions to figure out, is this a possibility? I didn't know if the vote count had been properly done, and so we wanted to secure the voting machines to make sure that it had been tampered with, our reporting was X, Y, and Z, but it was all based on the advice of my lawyers, and so I think those will be compelling defenses to some people.
0: But what about the um, fact that his lawyers are charged as co-conspirators with him?
1: Well, and I think that's going to be a defense that they raise. It is unique in the sense that we don't criminalize lawyers for being created. We don't criminalize people for brainstorming. We don't criminalize conduct, rather, for really thinking outside the box, even if at the end of the day that box becomes just a, a zany idea we look at it and say, it's okay to talk about it, it's okay to think as if the case. And I think one of the issues with the indictment is those discussions are now being considered as overt acts, even a simple discussion or a simple meeting. There's nothing unusual about voices being raised in the Oval Office. There's nothing unusual about lawyers telling a president something. There's nothing unusual about having lawyers with different views or different opinions or writing a memo and another person says, no, the, the appellate court's not going to do that or no, we, that's not supported by the case law. That's, that's not an unusual process, especially in, in the arena that we're, we're in. So I don't know how that will play out, but I think you will hear, and I imagine you will hear the lawyers saying, and at some point they may gain some support, not individually, but, you know, theoretically, they may gain some support from some more established and respected groups saying, look, a lawyer has to advocate. A lawyer has to be creative. A lawyer has to be able to give advice without fear of being prosecuted. A lawyer has to be able to have a discussion without fear of being prosecuted. And they, they make a big deal about he lost every case. If we're going to start punishing lawyers because their theory lost in every courtroom, there'll be a lot of lawyers in jail. And some people may agree with that. But as a principle, that may be something that we hear more about as the case goes on, as you say, because we do have lawyers named as defendants. And I'm not in any way justifying what they did or what they said or the efforts they took. I mean, if they gave false testimony and they knew it, then that's a problem. You know, if they had this concerted effort where they had clearly, without any doubt, proven that their numbers were wrong, you know, that's a different issue. But to somehow equate... Having a a freewheeling, creative legal discussion that that may have gotten animated into criminal conduct, I think, may be something that's a stretch and a step too far.
0: You were talking about the overt acts there. Is there anything else in the indictment, you know, the structure of it or that you see a problem with?
1: Well, when we talk about the removal statute, you know, when you're saying could it be removed to federal court, Mm -hmm. when I look at the indictment, there are 161 overt acts alleged in the indictment. 154 of those are alleged to have occurred while Trump was a sitting president of the United States. They've charged him in in a number of counts, I mean, probably uh, a dozen counts or so, and only two of those are alleged to have occurred after he was president of the United States. And I think that's going to cause some issues, and obviously another support for uh, removal. You know, can a locally elected district attorney charge us our former president for conduct while he was an acting president? If that's the case, I mean, if if that is going to become the the law and and that's the case, then I imagine you're going to see every president from now on indicted by some local VA who happens to be of the opposite party for conduct that they didn't agree with while that person was president. I mean, we're just headed down that path. I mean, I I think we're beyond headed down. I think we're running full. It's not the slippery slope. We're running full speed down the road into that. So I think those will be arguments that, that are made. There are issues, I think, with the... You know, some some things that come to mind as I look at the indictment, I mean, the voting machine issue, you know, who had the authority to look at the voting machines? Georgia law was amended in 2019, and local officials are allowed to purchase additional voting machines. It used to be under the whole statute that only the Secretary of State purchased those machines, and this gave local boards of elections authority to have those machines store on those kinds of things. Now, that may become an issue on who had authority, I look at the fake electors scheme in the indictment, and I don't know because I've not seen the documents, but it will be interesting to see if there's some notation or was there some reference in the meeting minutes or is there a report or was something said in testimony or what about whether or not this was being done to protect alternatives or to protect the rights? should the courts ultimately decide one way or another. You know, these are things that I think may come up. Uh, again, they being the prosecutors have access to information we don't all have right now but um, just to read through the nearly 100 pages of allegation I mean I can see some things that I think will become issues and then a good lawyer representing one of the 19 people I'm sure will grab a hold to at least dig into it somewhat
0: another thing that makes Willis's request for a March trial date so curious is that she's trying rapper Young Thug on RICO charges and jury selection has been going on for seven months. I mean, I've never heard of a jury selection going on for that long.
1: I don't know if it's because of the number of defendants. I don't know what's going on, but that's a Fulton County case where jury selection has been going on. I and mean, can you imagine having a, the former president and 18 of his closest friends sitting there selecting a jury? I mean, there's, there's just no way the case is going to get done. You know, there's there's sort of this frenzy amongst the Trump haters. There's so much excitement around the indictment. And I worry sometimes that statements like I'm going to try it in six months or we're going to get this trial in six months or we're going to try everybody. Together. I worry that sometimes that's like, you know, chum in the water a little bit because it's just not going to happen like that. And people need to understand this is likely a case. And I would say almost certainly crazy things happen. But I would say almost certainly a case that we will not see before the election. And then that will have its own effect as well.
0: Thanks so much, Michael. It's great to get insights from a lawyer who knows the Georgia courts. That's former U.S. attorney for the Middle District of Georgia, Michael Moore of Moore Hall. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com podcast law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way, from design and culture to technology, science and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon, official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.